Hi, this is Kev Lakes Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to say I am now joined on the phone by Peter Parsek. Uh, are you well? Yes, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm healthy. Good, good, good. I recently got into you because of your album, Mississippi Suitcase. Um, yeah, that's the, the latest one, yeah. A darn fine album. It's, you put me in a difficult position where when they come to play a track, it's like, which track do you play? Because they're all so good. Um, yeah, but that's a good problem, and that made my day that you said that. Thank <laughs> you. Well... <laughs> Was it? You don't want the opposite problem. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> what no. track do we play? Oh, they all suck. <laughs> <laughs> but would you say that that album was a, a labor of love? It was, yeah. The one prior to that, uh, 2017, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. So it was yes. three years between. That was obviously taking on with promotion and touring and gigging and stuff. We yeah, and it's also because I'm an independent, so each time I do one, I have to find funding to do it. Right. Like, I don't have a, I don't have, you know, like a management and record company funding behind it. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I've been lucky. Uh, people have been incredibly kind and supportive. So, you know, I have fans that, they like they like me, or they they're not sick of me yet. So uh, <laughs> they've been helping me. They've been helping me make, you know, continuing to make music, and I've been writing a new one during this during this time. So probably have to do a you know some sort of campaign to yeah. do the next one too. So you're on record as describing your guitar style as soul guitar. Would you say? Yeah, that actually came from um, when I first moved to Boston. Uh, one of my mentors and one of the first people I saw was uh, Hubert Sumlin and the person he was playing with was Ronnie Earl and I ended up being friendly with both of them. I ended up getting to play a little bit with Hubert and ended up getting to hang out a fair amount with Ronnie who was really uh, kind of took me around to hear people and meet people. So that connection was really... And that term came up a lot between those guys. You know, they kind of differentiated it. That's what they were really listening for. You know, they loved it if somebody had technique, but they were listening for the soul. Right. Whether it was a lot of notes or a few notes, that wasn't really the issue. It wasn't like, oh, I don't like them because they play a lot of notes. It wasn't that. It was like, can I hear the soul in there? Yeah, yeah. And so that was, and so that's where that came from, that, that, that term. Let's go way, way back in the midst of time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I haven't forgotten yet. <laughs> um, in the late 60s, you actually came over to England, didn't you? I did. I was really lucky because that was, a, it was the blues boom. Yeah. So there was pretty amazing people like that you could see in a club. Yeah, you know, well, on a I, nightly I, basis, there were some amazing people playing, and so that was really inspiring to me to see the high level that people were playing and and performing at. Because at, at that point, I was you know a guitar owner. I wasn't. I hadn't really committed. I was playing harp. I was playing blues harp and singing. 
and I played guitar, but I wasn't, you know, I'm self-taught, so I, I hadn't really figured out how to learn yet. And uh, seeing some of those folks uh, definitely helped quite a bit and was really inspiring. Yeah, well, Peter Green particularly. I'm, I'm just looking at the names there. You got Peter Green, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton. I mean, yeah, I mean, brilliant, all of them. I mean, yeah. We're talking about basically the highest level of the art form, you know. And I saw it really up close, so that was great. And then when I came back here, it led me to you know to look and try to see all the people who were still alive and and touring. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, Buddy Buddy Guy and Freddie King and Albert Collins and and obviously BB King and. All of those folks were, you know, they were still healthy and and touring, and so I got to see an amazing amount of people. And plus, you get to watch their hands. I mean, because there weren't at that. I know it's really ancient history, but there weren't videos at that time of, mm. like, you know, if you're doing this phrase, where do you do it? How do you finger it? Yeah. So you know, getting to watch, you know, those folks up close. Like I got to watch Buddy Guy up close. A number of nights, and uh, and even open for some people who were, you know, legends like Roy Buchanan. Going back to the the sixties when you were over here in the UK, yeah, yeah. Um, you used to sing and blow harmonica, and you joined the band playing rooms like the Marquee. Is this right? Yes, that's right. I, I uh, <laughs> the the thing I did wrong was I didn't have a permit. Very big faux pas. <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah the guys i was playing with um i don't do you remember the band gentle giant oh yes yes yeah now there was a guy in gentle giant named gary green who we call gaz his brother jeff was one of the guitar players i played with and then there was a, another guitar player named stan cross mm-hmm. played sort of like buddy guy ish so those were the two guitar players i sang and played harp I remember the drummer's name was Jim and the bassist's name was Ronnie, but I don't remember their last names. I'm sorry, it was a long time ago. But yeah. that was the band, and we we got to open for a bunch of amazing people. You know, be, again, because it was just that time yeah. that music was, it was really, you know, there were a lot of bands around like that, and maybe it helped a little bit that I was American. Yeah. God, Jeff Green and and uh, Stan were brilliant and Jeff Green and Gary Green together were ridiculous. They mm. would do this thing where they would play hideaway behind their heads <laughs> together. Like yeah. the how brilliant they were. You know, and it kind of it really humbled me. It was like, okay, this is the level that you got to play at if you if you want to play <laughs> this stuff. You know, so I had to do a lot of work when I came home. But yeah, we did. We played the marquee one time, I think, opening. I can't remember who we opened for at the marquee. Like I say, you uh, returned back to the the US and you'd see people like uh, Skip James, Muddy Waters, Albert King. Yes. And and you would take notes while you were Yeah, and I would go home and, and, and stay in my room for literally hours and hours and hours on end trying to learn guitar and and thank god for guitar player magazine because they ran a column by a jazz guitarist named jerry hahn h-a-h-n and he talked about scales and positions that was the first i ever learned about that and so from there it was you know just lots and lots of work 
you know, practicing well, with a metronome, et cetera, et cetera, you know? So. Yeah. I mean, it, in the notes here, it says that you practice for eight to ten hours a day. Yeah, that was for sure. It probably was even more than that, if you throw in listening, to yeah. the point where my mother actually got worried about me. <laughs> right. You know, like, are you going to come out of that room and have a life? Yeah. Are you going to go on a date? But, you know, seriously. It, it, <laughs> It was worth it in the end because, I mean, Buddy Guy compared you to Eric Clapton one night. Well, what happened there was I went to see, uh, there was a club here in uh, Cambridge, Mass. called Night Stage. And I was lucky to get to play that club a number of times, opening for people. And and anyway, I went to see uh, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells at that club one night. There was one seat at a table with a group of people who clearly were having a very good time. And uh, they had been, as they told me, following Buddy and Junior across the country, partying. So you can just imagine what that might have meant. But anyway, the bottom line was I was at a table with them. They had a table right by the front. So I watched the first set, and then Buddy and Junior went back to the dressing room, and this table got up and basically followed them. You know, I just stayed at the table, and one of the the people at the table said, well, why don't you come with us? We're going to go... In the dressing room, you know, this is what we've been doing basically all across the country. So went into the dressing room, and, you know, it was packed. It wasn't a huge dressing room to begin with, and it was packed, and it got a little, you know, it got a little claustrophobic, Mm. frankly. And so I normally would never do this because I don't feel it's right to touch somebody else's instrument if it's laying around, you know, like that's just not, that's another faux pas. (laughs) Anyway, so he had this white, ESP Strat, you know that company, I think it's a Japanese company, ESP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had a white ESP Strat. I think it must have been like a backup cuz he didn't use it on stage at least this night. And it was just laying there like sort of up against the, you know, the wall. And because it was so claustrophobic and so noisy, I thought, well, I'm just going to leave. You know, I don't know what possessed me. I just, like, looked at that guitar, and it kind of spoke to me. So, And I was curious, well, what kind of strings does he use? You know what I mean? Yeah, it was like, yeah. This was part of that thing of learning, right? So at least on this guitar, it was they were pretty light, and they were pretty easy to bend. So I just started to play it, like, really quietly, acoustically, you know, a strap. Yeah. You could barely hear it. And then I remember thinking, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this. This is Buddy Guy's guitar. <laughs> And I looked up, and he was across the room with his finger to his lips, and he was listening. And then I was incredibly embarrassed, like, oh, God, you know, he heard me, like, trying to do all the stuff I tried to steal from him. And that's when he said that thing, and he was he couldn't have been sweeter. Yeah. He couldn't have been sweeter. And then I thought, well, gee, maybe I'll really get to talk to him, but then, you know... There were so many people that it just, you know, it didn't happen. So I ended up just, you know, I ended up apologizing for touching his guitar and, you know, leaving the room. But uh, he he couldn't have been sweeter, you know, so. Coming on to your recording career, in 2010, you recorded The The Mathematics of Love. Yes. Uh, That was released under the name of the Peter Parsec 3, is that right? Yes. Well, I work a lot in trios, mostly for economic reasons, you know, that, it's it's sort of the most mobile, most affordable, you know, way to present something. Because yeah. um, I'm not a great I'm not a great finger picker, so I kind of need, you know, I need at least a drummer and preferably a drummer and a bassist, you know, to kind of make things happen. And I've been lucky, really lucky, to play with a lot of great great rhythm sections. So um, I mean, you were the 
touring band leader for Pine Top Perkins, wasn't he? Yeah, I I got that job. Um, I had some friends who had invested in this studio. It was on um, Newberry Street in Boston, which is kind of a prestige, you know, high-end street. Mm -hmm. And the studio was actually owned by the Cars, if you remember that band. Yeah, yeah. They started to kind of like divvy up the studio. I think they were considering selling it. So they would sort of lease or rent or have investors, you know, and these, these two friends became investors in it. But they thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll do, you know, a couple of blues albums in there, which they did. And one of the, the people they, they got was uh, Pine Top Perkins because he, again, he used to come through. And initially, I think they wanted uh, somebody else. And um, and I don't know why it didn't work out, but, but one of the engineers came to me and he said, would you be interested in playing on a Pine Top Perkins session? I was like, interested? What are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an honor, yes. He said, well, here's what you got to do. I'm going to give you some tracks, like rough tracks, and you've got to learn the piano riffs because he likes it if the guitar player doubles the riffs. It wasn't clear to me if it was Pine Top himself or the producer, but mm -hmm. somebody wanted those riffs doubled. Yeah, they said start with that, learn the riffs, and then you know we'll we'll try a session, right? So I forget how many tracks they gave me. It might have been three. So I I learned those riffs, you know, which are pretty amazing. I remember one song in particular, down in Mississippi. He had all these really cool phrases that he would do, and uh, so one thing led to another. I think I ended up being on maybe six or seven tracks on the record. And then he kind of picked up bands when when he would, you know, tour through the country. So they said, would, you know, would you be interested in, you know, playing when he comes to the Northeast? And that was going to be, it was going to be like, you know, Boston, Maine, Northampton, I forget, several other places, and then Nova Scotia. It's quite a bit away from where Boston is, mm. right? So... Right. Would you be interested? Again, like, yeah, of course, you know? So I put together a little band with a great rhythm section, and, and you know, we backed him up, and it was obviously a highlight musically and, and personally. Again, he could not have been more supportive and sweeter to the, to me personally and to the band. And it was a great, great day. I wish I'd gotten to do it more. Mm. You know, I can't claim I was his band leader forever or anything like that. It was a period of time and specifically when he came to the Northeast, but it was an amazing experience. And he was, you know, he was playing great and uh, singing great. And he would even go out and dance mm. in the audience when we played. And he had a different suit every night. Coming back to you, um, yeah. the, you released an EP, Pledging My Time, which was yes. Bob Dylan covers. Are they done in a blues style or are they... Yeah, they're. I mean... Some of them sort of veer a little more Americana, like She Belongs to Me. I think it's probably a little prettier, but, you know, leopard skin pillbox hats, definitely, you know, it's a shuffle. I do it definitely blues style, and uh, several of the other ones on there, uh, definitely bluesy. And, and uh, you know, it's Dylan, so it's, it's already, it's kind of a, a hybrid. It's got his brilliance, you know, those kind of incredible visionary lyrics. Mm. I was lucky to see that um, that electric tour that you know was so famous, the one that people booed him on. Oh right, yes. So and that informed a lot of it too because I loved how on that tour Robbie Robertson would play kind of what seemed to be Willie Johnson inspired phrases. You know, mm. 
juxtaposed with these amazing lyrics. So, Coming up to date with the Mississippi Suitcase. Yeah. Was that inspired by performing or touring down in the South? Well, it was, but the, the title itself specifically comes from a cab ride. Um, I had gone to Memphis, like you, for the Blues Awards, and uh, I took a cab from the airport. Mm. And the, the uh, cab driver was voluble, very, you know, voluminously voluble. Yeah. He didn't stop from the minute I got in the cab. And he told me a lot of his life, including the dissolution of his relationship. And, uh, and the way he described it, he said, you know, I knew we were going wrong, and I, I had to decide what the best course was. And he said, I finally decided I'm going to go home, and I'm going to tell her she can have the other car, she can have the house. And he said, so I did. I went home, told her she could have, you know, X, Y, and Z, and uh, I would take the other car. And I was going to move to where I think one of his sons lived. I can't remember where that was now. And he said, so I went upstairs and I put everything I owned into a couple of Mississippi suitcases, threw them in the car, and I got out of there. So, you know, it was a riveting story, but I also just sort of stared at him in the mirror because I didn't actually know what Mississippi suitcase meant. And he looked at me and laughed. He's like, oh, you must be from the north. I said, yeah, <laughs> I live in Massachusetts, right? He's like, Mississippi, okay, you don't know what that is. No, I said, you know, a green hefty bag? I said, yeah, he said, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually have recorded two songs that are called Mississippi Suitcase. One was an instrumental that I put on Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, and that's more sort of you just have to imagine it. You have to imagine this guy in the car, yeah. you know, and throwing his bags in. But then this new one is a lyrical, you know, interpretation or vision of that. But so that's that's what inspired that. <laughs> you say you've got tunes lined up ready for a new album. I do. I've been writing and, uh, and arranging, and I'm hopeful that uh, when things improve, fingers crossed, mm. toes crossed. Yeah be able to uh, to get in and, and record. Um, well, I was saying to somebody recently that last year is the first year since 1978 that I've not seen a single gig all year. And it's, yeah. It just feels so wrong. I cannot wait to see my first live gig. I mean, yeah, I did, a, I did a live session at a really great studio here called Q Division. They were able to do it in a way that was really safe. And uh, we're working on that now. We're mixing and, and editing it. Hope to have that out uh, sometime in, in 2021. You know, obviously, before I, I get to record a new record, I hope to have that that out maybe in the spring mm. of this year. Um, but that's I think that's five five tracks of video and yeah. uh, came out pretty well. It was a uh, it was actually the the rhythm section that played on most of. Mississippi suitcase and we did it at a really great studio so it, it's coming out really well I'm really happy with it but that's that's as close as I've come to a live gig you know other than yeah. than doing some stream things I, I also just did one for Blues Radio International but I know what you mean it's it, it's so weird well hopefully by the end of the year things will be leveling out and we can start making plans oh I really hope so I'd love to come over there and play brother 
Yeah, and uh, I can't wait to get back over to America. There's places I want to visit, people I want to see. Well, we got to hook up if you do. <laughs> right, certainly. You have my number. Yes, you I have do. my number. <laughs> well, I wish you all the best, and uh, hopefully we will get to hear this uh, new music later this year. I mean, like you were saying earlier yeah. on, you are an independent artist who relies on people buying yes. your music. So if they, if people go to your website and... Uh, yes, uh, peterparchickband.com. Yep, and the, the EPs, the albums are all there, and you can purchase them online. So please, please do so. Absolutely. And I wish you all the best, and hopefully we will meet up one day. That would be wonderful, and thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to, to be a guest. Please stay safe and well, and I hope everyone stays safe and well and that we come through this and we get to keep sharing the blues and sharing music with each other. You can't say fairer than that. And I hope you enjoyed that little interview there and there will be more as we record more for the show and we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well. So plenty more to come and of course if you want to hear the whole show there is always listen again. I'll see you next time. Take care.